Please hold whilst we connect you to Redacted. This is Lucy Bishop. And this is Fraser Greenfield. This is Rich Park. Split across their Korean and California studios, Bebop is a design studio already on their way to making their mark on the design world. With their thoughtful approach to designing products, experiences, and stories. We're joined by Rich Park, one of the directors and founders of Bebop, to find out what it takes to give souls to product design in Seoul. So Rich, do you want to describe yourself and your team to our audience? Yes. So we are Bebop, a industrial design studio. We mostly design consumer electronics, appliances, and some furniture and lighting too. We're based in Seoul, South Korea, around the area called Karoske. It's near Gangnam. And we also have a second office in San Francisco. We started out in 2015, so it's been about eight years now, and we're now a team of collectively 17 people. Um, that's 13 designers, three directors, including myself, and one studio manager. We collaborate with startups to corporations, especially with startups. We design their products and help them to get to market efficiently. We also work on the product development side, partnering up with uh, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, and mostly with corporations, we design new lineup of products. There could be future forward projects that are more experimental and imagining their next design language, essentially, and to discover new product categories. That's really cool. It must be amazing to work on like category defining products. Yeah, it's always interesting to explore what new products there could be. I mean, there are already so many consumer electronics out there, but there seems to be, as the social trends change, cultures change, new technologies come out, it's really exciting to work on completely new formats or product categories. Yeah, it's really cool, right? We're all kind of slowly morphing into cyborgs and what people are willing to accept is like that needle is getting pushed further and further. Yeah, but hopefully our intention is to at least have a little bit of humanism within all of the products. We've seen too many technology products that only focus on just showing off the performance and making it look super sci-fi, futuristic with sleek lines and honestly unnecessary surface details. Yeah, absolutely. And we feel that especially for new technology, it's we have to approach it in a design where it should be accessible and easily understood by the majority of the consumers. Absolutely. And like less intimidating as well, if you're working in new categories. Absolutely. I can definitely empathize with uh, less, less surface detail that isn't necessary. It's very endemic to mid 2000s design. On another note, how did you personally discover this field of industrial design? During middle school and high school, I was really into making things digitally with my computer. And I, I used to look up like YouTube tutorials on how to draw something on Photoshop or how to animate something in 3D motion graphics or even just hand drawing animations. 
like stop motion animation. I was also into photography and making music. There used to be a program called Fruity Loops, which I really loved. Um, I'm really grateful actually for my parents supporting all that, all of my random sporadic interests. And so I really loved making things using technology, but I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. And around the time towards graduating high school, my father, who's actually a industrial design professor at the college I went to, and he suggested, hey, you like making these creative things. Uh, why don't you give industrial design a try? So without having much thought, I just said, why not? And it was really, I would say, a love at first sight. Completely fell in love with the process and just the nature of the industry itself. I guess I really never looked back. I was really fascinated by first creating a beautiful shape just purely from your mind and it becoming an actual tangible physical object was so fascinating for me. And then once I got deeper into it, there was another layer of thoughtful approach to function and usability and how something works and why it should work that way. Mm. And another layer of that would be how that's all made, like the manufacturing techniques that are used and the production technique itself is actually quite inspiring for the aesthetics. And it's almost like a circular process. Like one informs the other. Exactly. And that always, I find, we're able to come up with quite realistic designs and be realistic when approaching the aesthetics, but at the same time, be able to come up with the best design possible. I feel like the way you talk about the manufacturing process and the materiality, it's kind of like the difference between an industrial designer and an artist. It's like one is designing within the restraints and kind of solving that puzzle and getting to that solution where the other, I feel like is such a broad option of like materialities and modalities that you can use. I personally like finding those little like niches within the rules or the brief or whatever you're kind of aiming to get where I find, which I think is quite common, like a blank piece of paper, a blank plan, like you can do whatever you want is just so overwhelming. Yeah. And that's why I think the strategic approach of industrial design is really fascinating. I think that's what like really makes it special as well. Yeah, it's a very fine line between art and engineering or science. And it's that kind of synergy effect that, I don't know, I just love it. Absolutely. I feel like there's so much psychology in it as well, like trying to work out why this shape appeals to people more than others and just like reading the like winds of friends and kind of always keeping your eye out for it's moving. Like once you think you understand it, you couldn't be further away because it's always changing. I feel it's almost like a conversation. That's a really good description or like a game of ping pong. Exactly. You put out a design and consumers react to it. And that reaction builds up to new trends, even new cultures. And then when we are back at, at the design stage, we're looking at that new trend and designing another one. And it's always like a back and forth kind of a conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you've done it really well, sometimes a mark two, and then the conversation keeps flowing between those like original customers and the customers coming back. Exactly. And sometimes it trickles off into quietness and we have to yeah. come up with something new. Absolutely. On, on the note of a newer conversation, 
you guys decided to start your own studio like straight out of uni as i understand what did that process look like and what was the catalyst for it right so the current three directors consists of su hwan jung pyong woo kang and myself rich park and we all went to the same university in korea a school called sadi which stands for samsung art and design institute i think we may have spoken with one of the very early staffers at there tom hardy Oh, really? Yeah. Please continue. Sorry. So we met at college during that time and it was a small school. There was only about, I would say, 15 people in the class that was majoring in industrial design. And it was almost like a familial kind of culture where everyone would spend time together, like 24 hours, working all-nighters on projects and sleeping and eating together. and we would basically share what each other is working on constantly. And through that time, the three of us kind of hit it off. It's kind of a funny story where we actually created a fictional design studio while we were in college, where we did a few concept projects that really didn't amount to anything. Mm. And it was mainly a really good excuse for drinking, just to excuse that we need time to ideate. So we did tons of drinking. And so that one, Obviously, it didn't work out. I mean, how else are you meant to get the creative juices? Exactly. You need some influence, right? That's the inspiration. Exactly. <laughs> and then, so since that didn't work out, we talked about maybe creating our own studio someday in the future for real. But at the time, it was a really just a naive thought. Although our passion was there, just realistically, we just weren't ready as we had, didn't have any real industry experience. And so after graduating, we went separate ways to gain some industry experience working in design studios or different companies. And just to go into what each director went into, Suhan ended up in Teague, which is a design agency originally based in the US, but he was in the Munich branch in Germany. And he was a designer there for about two years before starting Viva. And then for me, I did a couple of internships at Samsung, as well as a studio called Felix Heck, which coincidentally happens to be in Munich, Germany too, but it was at a different time. And then I did a master's in products research, actually in Cardiff Metropolitan University. And during this time, Pyongu went to Samsung Electronics, where he would go on to work there for about five years before joining Biba. And then during those times, there was a popular platform called Behance. I'm sure every designer knows. Is it no longer popular? I don't know. What do you guys <laughs> think? I feel it's kind of populated a little too much. There's a lot of competition and I'm not sure how it is now. I feel like Behance isn't like my go-to website, but I often get redirected there when I click on a link or something. Like there's definitely so much like quality work there, but it's not like drawing the website itself isn't drawing me in. It's just a real pain to upload stuff to it. You can reformat everything for their website. But yeah, sorry, there was a popular popular website called Behance and... Yeah, so when we graduated, we had our graduation projects and we uploaded them on Behance. And that was around the time when it was getting really popular. Mm -hmm. And we were very fortunate to get a lot of appreciations and through that, we actually started getting freelance work, but it was only from like one person entrepreneur or a very tiny startup with no experience. 
they were based in Europe and the US. And so while we were working separately, we would moonlight these projects as freelancers. And because they were really small projects, it was basically no money, but it was just all for the fun of it. And during that time, we kept in touch from time to time. One day, a slightly big, and when I say slightly, it's, it's just barely enough to just pay one month of a rent, really. Mm -hmm. And so a slightly big project came in and Suhan and I started talking about maybe working on it together. And at that time I was in Korea and Suhan was still in Munich. And then we naturally started talking about maybe starting our own studio. And this was actually just a matter of a couple of text messages. If I remember correctly, it was even just less than five minutes of texting where, hey, should we start a design studio? And we just said yes. I feel like it sounds like one of those little notes you pass to someone. Will you like start a studio with me? Check yes, check no. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you go out with yeah. yeah, and we are working partners, so we're basically married, right? Oh my gosh, that's fashion. perfect then. <laughs> it's our love story. And and how did you come up with the name? Does it have anything to do with Space Cowboys or? We, we get that a lot. <laughs> um, I would say like almost all of our clients ask us in their first meeting, but it really doesn't have a meaning behind it. We just like the sound of the word, but it is a subgenre of jazz. And, you know, you talk about a work marriage and it's, I guess it's a polyamorous work marriage with three partners. Are there any conflicts that arise out of that and any, any big benefits as well? There are a lot of benefits. I mean, we all have different perspectives and everything we experience and we talk a lot. We spend a lot of time talking during the day and although it may not be as efficient as maybe just one person making all the decisions, we feel that all of the decisions that we make become stronger through us talking through it. And there's many other benefits from that. And we're, we can almost rely on each other at times too, when there are challenging times. And thankfully, we've actually never fought or had any sort of arguments. And we're very lucky to have that relationship. Redact Redacted. Hey everyone, this episode is sponsored by PCBWay, the go-to destination for printed circuit board prototyping, low volume production and PCB assembly. If your team are working on electronics and you're in need of prototype PCBs, I can't recommend PCBWay enough. You can get a quote instantly, even if your circuit board schematics aren't finished yet. They can also help you with injection molded, 3D printed, sheet metal, and vacuum cast prototypes. PCBWay is the circuit board prototyper of choice for companies like Samsung, Siemens, Honeywell, Tesla, and Apple. But you don't have to be a big company to use their services. I've personally used their service to instantly get quotes and have assembled prototype PCBs delivered in a timely manner. On top of all that, PCBWay is so excited to be working with us. They're offering a special discount just for our listeners. When you get a quote from PCBWay, be sure to use our promo code REDACTED, 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 Redacted for a special discount on us. You can find PCBWay in our episode description or go to pcbway.com. What was your strategy in those early starting days? 
we really had no strategy. So after deciding to start the studio, we met back up in Korea. We actually didn't have any plans for it. We had no office, no money, just two designers with two laptops and just a lot of passion. And there was actually an interior designer friend of ours who introduced us to one of our clients who was looking for someone to share their office space with. So we were very grateful for, they had a really nice space. The reason why I did that, they, I think they were kind of hoping for some sort of a collaborative relationship, but Suhan and I aren't too much of social people. And so we were all caught up in just doing our own work. And so they gave us a tiny desk at a corner of their office and we just sat next to each other to work. And in the beginning, we barely made any money just to get by, but it was just so fun to work on designs on our own. And it almost felt like we were back in college, just friends working on projects together. Mm -hmm. We would spend all nighters and pretty much working every waking minute. And we were very fortunate to get those projects early on. And there started to be a steady flow of clients. And sometimes if there was no work, we would just design sort of internal concept projects just to build up our portfolio. It's kind of cool how you talk about how it feels like college, because that was one of the striking things I found when I got like my first professional full-time design job was like in the studio, we'd all like take on these projects and we'd all work on them together. And it really felt like we were in like a university group, but everyone was like an MVP and everyone was like pulling their weight. And it was just like a really, really fun experience and like you get really close to everybody and it's really nice yeah it's it's a really great feeling that everyone is bringing their a-game and you can really trust each other to bring high quality ideas or just work really hard and being open to working with each other too absolutely and i just love that it's not like the other thing was like, this is my job. Like, this is what I get to do. This is what I get to focus on. Whereas when you're at uni and you're in those group projects, I'm sure those people who aren't bringing their A game are distracted by really important things, but it just feels like there's less of that in the professional space. And it just makes it really seamless in a lot of cases. Seamless might be a weird word. Like obviously you come across like challenges and hurdles, but. Yeah, I think there might be, I don't know. I've only heard stories, but. Being so close with your colleagues or, or working partners can sometimes bring in emotions into the work, but thankfully that's never happened to us. Maybe because we're all emotionless. <laughs> and, and being emotionless robots, at what point did you suddenly decide to build a strategy, you know, around your business? Before we hired any teammates, mm. we really didn't have any strategy and I guess our strategy was just giving everything 100% all the time. And we used to say just yes to every work, no matter the budget of the project, the nature of the work, not just industrial design, actually. We would do prototyping, model making, branding, designing logos, or even photography and like videos, and as well as app designs or like designing even crowdfunding campaigns. We would just say yes to them. And especially with startups, after the industrial design is complete, they would ask us, can you also design a logo for us? Can you design a website? And we actually didn't, but we just said yes. And we ended up looking up YouTube tutorials on how to code a website 
and how to design a logo using Illustrator. And we would spend all night trying to figure it out. And luckily, we were able to get through it. Would you say that that was necessarily a good decision in hindsight? Because I know that like in some businesses, they kind of get too caught chasing the money and it ends up destroying their long-term prospects as a result. To give you an example, there's a lot of businesses that say, oh, we'll do a little bit of point of sale because it's the money's good and the work is consistent. And then five years later, that's all they do is point of sale. Looking back, I think it was the right decision. Because of that, we were able to get by and experience other things that we wouldn't have experienced if we were to only work on industrial design projects. We got to understand the whole business side of actually producing a product and selling a product and getting to experience that firsthand and very, being very hands-on with the actual contents that are put out as marketing, whether it's images or video. Mm -hmm. Being able to control the narrative. Exactly. For the project, it was good because it was a unified, cohesive identity. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it was good for us because we got to learn the full process of how a business runs and how we can help. And are those services still things you provide or have you sort of filtered those out over time? Our passion is very much industrial design and we love making physical things. So as we were fortunate enough to get more projects only on the industrial design side, uh, we started to focus less on the other parts of the of the marketing side or creating contents. And we now try to focus on just the industrial design side of it. If they need help with any other parts, whether it's like software design, we work with very close partners. It must be kind of cool to speak to them on like their language, having previously done that work yourself, kind of knowing what is possible, what's not possible, what might be possible in a shorter time frame to really help drive that narrative as well, even though you're not the one specifically doing that work. Exactly. The one big thing that we realized was industrial design is just a tiny part of creating a product brand and being able to work with different teams from different industries like engineering or marketing or being able to directly talk to the CEO who's purely business driven and thinks about money as the first priority and having experienced those things allows us to communicate easier and find a common point and be able to communicate our design intentions through ways that they can understand. Absolutely. Like everyone's just that little bit more comfortable. Exactly. So at what point did you guys say that like you've made, your, you got your first big client and, and you guys were like stable, you've made it, this dream of yours had been achieved and now you just had to maintain it. So for the first three years of Bebop, it was just Suhan and I, and although we called ourselves a design studio, we were basically just two freelancers. But about five years in, like big brands all came in at once. It was the strangest thing. And that was around 2020. Multiple brands that suddenly just emailed us, inviting us to work together. Do you think you know what the catalyst was? I'm not sure. I think it's just looking back, I would say as we were starting to build up our portfolio, working with a lot of startups, they started to notice 
that we were consistently getting our designs out into the market, getting manufactured. And I guess that built up the credibility. And I suppose they got to a point where they would be able to trust us to do a good job on their project. Yeah. So you'd worked in like a similar like product offering and like they must obviously have been impressed and continually seen your name pop up or. Yes. It's great if it's like a similar product category, but sometimes it's a different product item, but maybe it uses a similar uh, manufacturing techniques. So at least that common thread is allowing us to give them the trust. Of course. To summarize, you put out a lot of products with startups and you reached a sort of critical mass? I think so. Yeah. I'm not sure if I can call it a mass because it wasn't too many, but we were very lucky that the big companies could trust us. And were all these products released in the same same market and same sort of sector, like, you know, consumer electronics in South Korea or? They were all different, but they were all consumer electronics and they were released, depending on the client, they were all over the world, including Europe, US and Korea. So looking back in your early days, what do you think the BPOP team could have done better? And what did you excel at? I feel like our process of growth was quite slow compared to the trajectory of other design studios. But that's mainly because we started from nothing with no experience, no connections to anyone. But looking back, all experiences were, I feel, what we needed to grow and be ready to face next challenges any experience that we had, whether they're good or bad. And maybe we could have marketed ourselves more or made our first hire quicker or priced ourselves higher to grow quicker. But we feel that every experience was good experience. And that's what allowed us to become the studio that we have today. Yeah, like you have to kind of be on your own journey, right? Like what was successful for one studio isn't necessarily going to be the right path for somebody else. Exactly. You can look into case studies all you want, but the only way to really find out is to experience it for yourself. And we feel that's the only way to really learn from it and be able to adapt to those experiences. Absolutely. And it sounds like you had like quite a nice gentle like curve up as well, as opposed to maybe a studio that grows really quickly and potentially ends up out of their depth or things like that. Right. Comparing to like a common, like a skyrocketing Mm. analogy. Like I don't have anyone in mind, but like, (laughs) (laughs) I I certainly know about getting in like over my head and your, your method sounds a lot smoother. (laughs) Yeah. For us, it was more like a very horizontally long series of steps. Yeah. Tiny steps. Would you say there were any decisions that you made or like things you wouldn't compromise on that really like turned out to be an advantage? Compromise on design decisions? Or didn't compromise on like a philosophy or we don't want to make this cheap or... Actually, we think the other way. We believe, I guess compromise has a slightly negative connotation, Mm. but we believe it's important for designers to be flexible and be open to different situations, especially as a design consulting agency, you're working with clients who are from all different backgrounds in different financial situations in different markets. And 
the most important thing is to recognize that and adjust to it. We don't force our specific design language or we don't apply a specific process to all of the clients equally. It's all different every time. I think what's most important is being able to adapt. I feel like that adaptive mindset is so important because like if there really was just this cookie cutter, like series of steps that you could take to like designing the perfect product would already be there, right? Like it's those things that you do differently and the way that you adapt that make these like unique, incredible products that obviously like the end consumer is happy with. Exactly. If there were no limitations on money or market, any designer can design a super premium looking high end, beautiful product, but it's the limitations of cost and the market and approaching that strategically is we feel is the responsibility of a designer being able to get the most out of those limitations makes a great designer. Speaking on process, what, what is the Bebop design process? I know you mentioned that you're, you try to be flexible, but you know, when you, when you do get to, to implement things your way, how do you guys do it? Our overall process is just like any other designers or the studios where you experiment with a different range of ideas and start narrowing down, refining. But we're fairly a young design studio with everyone in their 20s and 30s. We have a very open culture. And because we're all in a similar age, it feels like a family almost who share the same love for design, where everyone chimes in and we really do everything as a team. And sometimes just one interesting comment from someone else could turn into a fully refined design strategy. So that kind of collaborative environment for us, it reinforces our team spirit. And we like to keep a specific mindset and that's dedicating ourselves to being optimistic and curious. We always start with no assumptions or presumptions. And we like to actively question even the most obvious things. And it helps us to look at projects with a fresh mind, even if it's like the 10th time we're designing the same product category. So it's a very almost active daydreaming and a lot of asking silly questions. And sometimes even existential questions too. For example, when we were designing a water purifier that gets in installed in, on your kitchen top, we would ask ourselves, why does this product exist? What real value does it actually bring to consumers? Its purpose is to provide clean water and our design strategy and ideas during the project would all revolve around the story of how can we create a clean and delicious drinking water experience through design. And that's a really conceptual question, but it's asking questions like these that spark really exciting design strategies, we feel. Just being open and very innocent almost about every project, I think helps us to find unique approaches every time. I mean, it certainly sounds a lot more attentive than the typical, the customer wants a pretty product, ship it out the door in 12 weeks. Right. Especially, I think, projects like that, we actually like to challenge the brief a little. Mm -hmm. So sometimes a client might want to just upgrade the aesthetics just a little bit and just release a new model. But we first like to think about, well, why does there need to be a next model? And what value does it actually bring? 
And sometimes that leads to really unique ideas that can spark conversations with the client that would follow up as a kind of a new project. But of course we would, as the requirement is given that we need to release a next model quickly, we would of course uh, satisfy that first, but we would have this, our kind of own perspective on it and share that a little bit as a hint. And sometimes that can create a spark to lead onto an exciting new project. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's so much more of a responsibility now as well when people are making new like models of products that like, is this something we really should be putting into the environment? Like, are these features worth the like cost? Yeah. And, and like maybe a new facade for the product isn't always enough. Exactly. We feel it's almost our jobs to find the reason for that new model. Absolutely. And like, not to say the new model with a new facade, with a new manufacturing technique that's more environmentally friendly isn't a reason, but just generally speaking, a new shell probably isn't cutting it these days. Right. You're listening to Redacted. To stay up to date with the show and see what else we've got going on, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at redacted underscore design POD. Subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends. Cheers. So I'd love to know how sketching fits into your process and your studio culture. For us, sketching is an essential way of communicating. We feel it's equally important as just talking or writing even, whether that's the core concept of an idea during brainstorming or discussing with engineers on any of the details in the surfacing while referencing CAD data or just describing just the overall product's architecture or a certain mechanical structure or a way of assembling a product or a way of manufacturing a certain material. It's a essential way of us communicating that. Amazing. It's definitely all about the communication, isn't it? Like the communication of the design, the intent, and like it all coming together to create this like product that really reaches people. Does that mean like you have like a big sketching table in the center of the studio with all the with all your copics in a big bin? I would say it's more like the opposite. We have like tiny post-its and like crappy pens and pencils just to do like chicken sketches. Back in the days of industrial design, of course, sketching really beautifully with colorful markers was important because that was the fastest way to visualize both the shape and the CMF, which are color material and finishing. But now we have access to much more efficient ways of working on it on CAD or 3D rendering or even simple, just 2D rendering on Photoshop. So in that sense, the role of sketching has changed where it's no longer a means to visualize, but a means to communicate. So we feel it's not important to make it pretty, but just enough to get the message across. Do you ever worry that a little piece of the romance has been lost in that? I think so, but at the same time, there are new romances that have been created through like 3D rendering and being able to create digitally things so quickly, I find it so fascinating. And there are so many 
creative ways to explore different things. So while in the sense that the romance of sketching has kind of died down, mm. at the same time, the romance of digital creation has exploded. And with that sketching on post-it notes, is that sort of like you describe something to someone else, they sketch it out, see how you communicate that idea, and then it mutates across that branch, or is it just, let's get an idea down, put it up on the wall. Like what is, what is that end to pencil communication look like at your, at, at Bebop? It's just like talking. One person might, rather than describing it just by words, mm. might quickly just sketch something and, hey, it should look like this, or I like the feeling of this kind of form, or this mechanism could be assembled this way. The other person might write down or draw out another mechanism. How about this one? And everyone just basically keeps drawing and it's a back and forth communication. I feel like sketching is so interesting because like for me, when I have an idea, getting it out can be sometimes be really challenging. So sketching just really helps me kind of get that little like almost keyhole view or magnifying glass so that I can really start to imagine the whole thing come together. Because often like when I'm thinking about a product or designing a product, like in my mind internally, like the whole product doesn't exist. It's almost like a blur that's like searching over a product. So it's kind of collating all those little details that my brain can't like synthesize at once. Yeah. If you're in a time sensitive situation where you have to put out concepts right away, even in that situation, we feel sitting down straight in front of a computer on CAD, it really blocks your creativity. And so sketching is a means of kind of getting that fire started in a sense. Absolutely. I kind of love collaging ideas from different things together as well. And that can make it really easy. Exactly. And we love seeing like crazy ideas on sketches that doesn't even make sense. That often kind of inspires a way to refine that in a realistic way that can be manufactured or created in different ways. You mentioned you guys did a bit of model making earlier on the studio's life. Is that something you guys still do? And, you know, is that something that you like really want to excel at as well? Now, just like working with engineering partners or branding partners, we leave it up to the professionals. So we work with a lot of model makers where there are fantastic model makers in Korea who are being used even internationally. Mm -hmm. Even in San Francisco, a lot of design studios mostly use Korean model makers. And so that they are the professionals. And so we leave it up to them. It's almost a little bit sad. Like as you've gotten bigger, one of your skill sets has almost sort of died. Yes. But that also gives us the chance and the time to focus on what we can do best. I mean, do you still have a 3D printer in the office though, just for doing like general forms? Yes, of course. 3D printing is a fantastic technology that allows you to quickly just print out physical shapes and helps us to not also validate, but just to check how it feels physically very early on in the process. So what challenges do you think Bebop will be facing in the near future? And how do you plan on tackling them? We really don't know. We can't predict the future and really anything could happen. For example, who knew COVID would happen? We feel that the best we can do is to just stay open-minded and stay flexible towards whatever happens. We just keep doing the best we can with the things we can do right now and continue to try new things. And I feel it's really been this way since the beginning. 
we feel we still have the same exact mindset as 10 years ago when the three directors first met in college. Just now we have a bit more responsibility as a team, mm-hmm. maybe able to tackle new challenges with a more informed experience, but our spirit remains the same where we're open to anything and we want to stay flexible as much as possible. Is that something you've tried to definitely build in when you, when you set up your California studio? Yes. Starting our team here in San Francisco is almost feels like starting from a slightly blank canvas, maybe a hazy one. While we have our culture back in Seoul, uh, we have new local designers here and we're able to start building something new, but at the same time, keeping that flexible and that familial culture that we have back in Seoul. Has there been any, any hurdles to that process starting out in San Fran? So far, so good. <laughs> we were actually expecting maybe there could be some cultural differences or some designers might have a different mindset, but that's really common for every designer, regardless of the country or what their background is. Every person is different and we found that it's the same. It's the same case in Seoul. So it's not something that we didn't expect. So this might be a bit of a, you know, an ignorant Western question, but considering that most popular descriptors of Korean culture tend to be based around Yi Sun Sin or K-pop dramas or some claim on a news website that it's a cyberpunk dystopia. Could you give us a quick rundown of what makes Korean culture unique compared to say that of the US? I can point out a few unique characteristics I've grown with in Korea, but I'm by no means the right person to speak on the details of the Korean history, but I feel it's, it needs to be mentioned to get the context of why Korea has this culture. Especially I was the worst at history classes throughout my school years. So, but Korea historically has been a very poor country until only recently around 1950s. I'm 30 years old. So 1950s, that's only our parents' generation where Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. And before that it was invaded by Japan in 1910 and it got only its independence in 1945. And then there was a war between the North and South Korea in 1953. And then suddenly Korea exploded and has seen the fastest economic growth pretty much in the history of the world. And it's really fascinating that no other country grew this much, this fast. And this was mainly due to a big movement as a whole country to work hard and grow as a country together. And this was when Korea's industrial development began, where Hyundai would start making cars, Samsung began producing semiconductors. Actually a fun fact, Samsung used to be a flower production factory, but this was back in like 19, late 1930s. So it was really our parents' generation that single-handedly made Korea into a large economy that it is today. And I'm sure everyone around my age remembers our parents working more than 12 hours a day. And it was a very typical thing. And so naturally they would pass these values of working hard to their kids. 
including myself. And there's actually a word in Korea that's used very often, and that's fighting. But it's a word that I feel defines this period of Korea. So fighting is almost like a Koreanized word. That's obviously an English word, but it doesn't mean literally fighting. But the nuance is kind of true. So when people say fighting in Korea, it's a cheering word. And they usually use it for cheering for the group to work hard and do a great job at something. So like the British equivalent of hazard. Exactly. And it contains that kind of almost like attacking spirit in its meaning. And it's still very commonly used even today. And mm -hmm. it, I think it really shows the passionate mentality of Korea. And in a lot of ways, this expression embodies the spirit of Korea having grown so fast as a country. There's a few more Korean cultural things I can share. So another part about Korea is Korea's group mentality. I mentioned fighting the act of cheering, but it also shows this Korea's group mentality where we believe being stronger as a team rather than as separate individuals. And we tend to easily understand what's best for that team, even if that means you have to sacrifice something of your own. While this whole working hard to become successful is not so different from like the American dream, but it was the country as a whole that had that unified mindset, which I feel makes it so unique. And then there are another factor where Korea also, as much as Koreans work hard, they play hard. Uh, there's a big drinking culture. The first priority is really getting drunk and making sure everyone else is as drunk as you. <laughs> it's about good hospitality. Exactly. And so we would often, after work, start chugging down soju and constantly cheering each other to encourage drinking together. <laughs> and in a way, I think that kind of builds that Korean group mentality and also like a team spirit too. But all of that fighting spirit, um, I feel, is what made Korea successful. However, with the new generations, with millennials or the Gen Z, mm. this the super intense spirit of working hard is now a little bit more relaxed, but it's still there. But I feel with the younger generations, they're more open to trial and error and experimenting with new things. And they really value physical and mental well-being, uh, living a more balanced life, and really just appreciating and enjoying the things we have now. So I would say in Australian culture, we're almost victims of our own success because it was our, our grandparents and great-grandparents that had that sort of will make a group sacrifice and work hard mentality. And our parents kind of just lived off the fat of that. And as a result, millennials have sort of been, millennials and Gen Zs have sort of been, we, what's the word? We focus on experiences and not accruing wealth, not because we don't want to buy a house, but because we view it as unobtainable. So why try? Right. I do know there's a, there's a Korean, I probably mistranslated this, but sneaky smart. Could you go into that a bit? Sure. So that's the best translation that I could come up with. So there's a part about Koreans where they're very sneaky smart and 
in Korean, it's chanmori. And the literal translation is, it's not the main brain in your head, but almost like a sly or sneaky part of your brain or the part of your brain that you're used to think of smart tricks to work around problems or cheat the system or find loopholes. And I feel Koreans are really talented at finding loopholes and finding smart ways to work around rules quickly. And I've seen that in actually esports. So I'm not sure if you guys know, but Koreans are crazy good at gaming. And in the esports world, they're, they're unbeatably, undoubtedly the best players all compared to all other countries. I think part of that is due to that sneaky, smart uh, brain that they really, that really have. And so esports being like a really fast paced and strategic and it really depends on teamwork. Uh, I feel it makes sense that Koreans are really good at it. That's really cool. It's almost like they've kind of been primed potentially by like the older generations, like lifting the economy and putting all that effort in and like potentially really honed that side of their mind. Right. Koreans are almost rebellious in a way, in the way that when the economy was growing, they didn't really play by the rules. They found sneaky ways to do it more efficiently, do it faster. And that, I believe, built up to the fact that Korean was able to grow so quickly. Mm. Something we could all definitely learn from. How would you say design culture in Korea compares to the US? I would say design culture is already quite similar, actually. And I think it's a result due to just the internet age. Actually, the design culture in Korea is really young because it's been only recently where the society has been well off. So naturally, Korea followed a lot of established design cultures, whether that's from Japan, Europe, or even the US. And so I feel like Korea just now matured into its own culture or is maturing now. And that includes the arts, design, fashion, and even music. And now everyone knows K-pop or K-film or K-dramas. And I feel Korea is starting to develop its own design culture. Yeah, absolutely. And like identity. Yeah. And because Korea is really sensitive to latest trends, they change really quickly, especially the fashion industry. And related to that, the product cycle in Korea is also very fast. And companies are constantly trying something new, whether that's like a new aesthetic trend, a new technology, or even a completely new product category. So in a way, I feel the design culture of Korea is almost shallow, but in the best way possible. It never stops changing and it's always searching for the next exciting thing. Constantly reinventing. Would yeah. you say there's any disadvantages to that shallowness? Absolutely. I think there's always pros and cons to everything. And even Korea having economically grown so fast, the money is there and people are living well, but I feel the culture has not yet developed too much and that needs time to develop. To me, the design culture in the US, it feels a little bit more stable. It's figured out its pace, but even still US shares a 
similar spirit of like trying new things and adopting new innovations. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a slightly tame version of Korea, but I feel it's largely the same. They're both very much a capitalist society with big importance in commercial design. Almost sounds a little bit impersonal. Would that be an accurate assessment? Impersonal? In, in what way? It's overly commercial. And it's not necessarily representative. Let's say you have one designer worked on a certain piece. It doesn't necessarily reflect them in any sense. It's purely the company. Right. I think it is that way. Mm. But having a thriving businesses that are making new products, it also gives the designers a chance to explore more of personal things too. Because we have the abundance of those commercial designs, um, we can rely on them as a safety net almost. And then while we have the time to ourselves, we can focus on developing more personal things. Would that ever be an angle your team would ever want to pursue where, you know, this business is like Teenage Engineering or Mark Newson, where if you see a product designed by then, it almost always has a very strong imprint that is theirs. Would that ever be something in the future you'd want? You want it to be obvious, assuming the client is keen for that, this is a Bebop product. This is this has its own kind of jazz. Absolutely. Your kind of jazz. Absolutely. I think if that makes sense with it, to do that with a client, mm. that's fantastic. But most often, more often than not, we believe in focusing on what they should be doing and what they should improve upon. And so in order to develop our kind of own design identity, I think it's an investment that we have to make. And we're definitely interested in exploring that part in the future where not just consumer electronics, but more into the traditional side of industrial design, where it's like furniture or home objects, accessories, things that don't involve high quantity manufacturing and complicated electronics, but more of the products that focus on the pure aesthetics and how it's made and the materials itself. I know that's a good segue into this question that Lucy's been dying to ask. I would love to know if you have any examples where you've convinced one of your clients or really put your foot down that like design really is a value add to the company and the product where maybe you've really had to convince someone of a materiality or a process and that maybe it would drive that price up just slightly, but you get so much more value from it. I think industrial design and commercial context is essentially just the necessary tool for a successful business. And we found that success of a product depends on largely three aspects. That's design, engineering, or slash manufacturing, and marketing slash branding. And so great industrial design alone cannot bring success. It's only when the three teams all do their best in their parts and that's when the magic can happen. Like and the Holy Trinity. <laughs> exactly. Like the commercial Holy Trinity. Yeah. And ID is, ID is just one part of the story, but obviously a necessary part. So we think good design itself is not the result, but it's a catalyst. And 
design is not just drawing a beautiful shape. It's an investment for businesses. It can save cost of manufacturing. It can disrupt the market with a bold new aesthetic or define relatable human-centric usability and features. And when consumers judge a product brand by their product, it's almost like the spokesperson or like a spokes object, if that makes sense. So considering the value of industrial design, it just makes sense to invest in it. And it's a tool to be ultimately used to build a respected brand image. Absolutely. I feel like it can, like a good start with like the industrial design can make the engineering easier. Like if you're focusing on it while you're designing the product and it can also make like marketing and advertising easier. Like if you make an incredible product, like people are going to want to sell it. People are going to want to buy it. Like people are going to feel invested. Yeah. Sometimes marketing wise, that unique positioning of the product sometimes could come from the marketing team, but it can also be found from design process. Very circular, like you were saying before. Exactly. Like looking into the other products out in the market, sometimes what we find turns into a whole marketing strategy for the company. So to summarize, good design is a good investment. Yeah, it's a tool for investment. I mean, maybe on the negative side of investment, like has there ever been a time where you've had a big failure and, and what did you learn from it? It was an investment in learning as opposed to investment in the business. Yeah. If we were to choose the biggest failure, I think it would be around like the early days of Bebop where it wasn't necessarily the, the product itself was unsuccessful, but to tell you the story, it was actually one of the very first projects of Bebop. Mm. It's called Thinno and it's a, the product is a small portable power bank with an integrated charging cable. We'll have a copy of it in the show notes. It is quite beautiful. Thank you. But it was a, it was a client from Romania actually. And because it was one of the first projects of Bebop, we basically invested our life in it. And actually because our life depended on it too, to make money. So for that project, we did everything. Industrial design, prototyping, branding, logo, photography, campaign design for the crowdfunding even copywriting for the campaign. We basically made the company ourselves and the client promised a percentage of the crowdfunding backing. And then, so the campaign went live and it was successful. And I remember at that time we were constantly checking the campaign status and how many backings it had. And we were calculating how much money we would make off of that percentage. And it was pretty good money. And it was worth the work we did. And so the campaign ended and we were excited to talk, obviously, to the entrepreneur. So we sent him an email saying congratulations. And, but we didn't get an e email response. Oh, no. A few days passed and we sent in another email just to check that it didn't go into like a spam folder. But still, there was no response. Around three to four weeks later, we kind of realized oh shit, we got scammed. That's horrible. After realizing that, we initially had designed the website for Tenno. Mm. So we had the control over the website. So we went on there, changed the website, told all backers that he's a scammer. He got away with it. And crowdfunding is legally an investment. So as soon as the money is handed over, 
it's up to the company to deliver on it. Wait, so the product never even got made? They didn't even just scam you out of your design services? No, he basically scammed all the backers. Oh my God, I thought you meant that like he scammed you for the product but was delivering on the product. Yeah, he scammed us and everyone else, all of the backers. That's horrible. That's not a story I've heard is like rampant in the like Kickstarter community. It happens often enough. Yeah, there's there was a phase where there was a bunch of maybe it's not intentional. Maybe they realize that it's just impossible after the fact that the backing is complete. But like I know of stories where people have not been able to fulfill due to like either they've had too many orders or something economically has changed and their like quotes are no longer valid so they can't make it for that price. But maliciously developing products no intention of ever producing them is not a story I've heard. Yeah, we're, we can only assume, I mean. Oh, totally. Maybe he had all the intentions to make it, but then saw the numbers going up in his bank account and just suddenly thought of just going away, disappearing. Well, maybe I could just pocket I mean, this and run. I was going to say you own all the IP, right? Maybe you could do it yourself one day. Yeah, it's it's a possibility, but at the time, we obviously didn't have any sort of money to consider it. It's hard to right? Like, if that was your studio's first project, like, that must feel a lifetime ago. It's probably not a, like, I'm making the assumption it's probably not a project that you want to, like, circle back to. But it's something... Like, with focus always being in on the future. Right. And throughout that experience, we tried to make lemonade out of lemons. And thankfully that because we kind of put all of our efforts and gave it our best to make the design as best as possible, that led on to actually many new clients and projects where they referenced, you know, as they liked the design of it and they would ask us to design different exciting new products. I'm so disappointed. I was just looking at it before and I was like, oh, this is sick. I'm going to have to get one. And then you were starting to tell the story. I was like, oh, I couldn't possibly like own this product. And then you said, and I was like, oh my God, this is an absolute ethical nightmare. Even if it was made. Yeah. It's a story that we, we always talk about when we're drinking. It was a very big learning experience. Yeah. If you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Is there anything that like you definitely would do now to prevent that sort of thing from ever happening again? Absolutely. Obviously set up the agreement properly, but I think what we learned is it's important to make sure that you have a professional relationship and being professional, not in just the work, but the relationship with the clients. So it's important to set a clear agreement and making sure that you have a safety net. Mm. I feel like also making sure the client knows what will be the deliverables as well so that like even on the other side like they don't feel like they had this completely different expectation is always good too in terms of an agreement like protects both people right managing expectations get their real name if they do a runner yeah but who knows he he might have been gotten he might have scared away if we were too strict about the agreement and making sure that he's going to pay and so we found that although it was a big failure, it's also the biggest learning experience that we could have had. And because it was such a big work scope where we did everything on top of industrial design, 
we learned a lot of different things from it. Your trajectory would have been very different without that project. Could be, yeah. So I think all of the little experiences and projects we did in our past really did affect where we are today. So what have been the biggest challenges with growing your business? So there were a few things. Initially, the challenges was just staying afloat, staying alive, basically. However, because we just did all the work that came in, thankfully, we're able to stay alive. But the next big challenge was building a team. The hardest thing for us, apart from starting like the business side of this whole design studio, was building the culture of the team. But we realized that largely that just depends on the actual team members themselves, how they live in our culture. But it was a very difficult thing to balance between how much restrictions do we put and how much freedom and independence do we give the team members? Because setting a rule for everyone makes it definitely efficient and be able to work efficiently. At the same time, of course, you don't want to have too strict of restrictions where it blocks creativity and everyone just becomes working machines. So it was very difficult and it was a process of trial and error to find that fine line between giving them the independence and while having a efficient rule or a system. Do you have any tips on where to find that kind of Goldilocks spot? Again, I think it, it's just like asking, how do you make a successful design studio? It just depends. And it's just a matter of trial and error. And you really have to go through it to find that balance because the team members will all be different if we it were another design studio and the cultures will be different. So I think it's just a matter about being open to changing and trying things out and making sure to try those things out quickly to find your balance. Yeah. And were there any like activities or institutions that you like, you said, we have to do this, you know, we all have to go for Friday drinks or something. Yeah. We've heard of like happy hours on Fridays. It's a quite common in the US and we definitely reference those as inspirations, but we also like to come up with our own kind of fun systems. And thankfully that's been, that's all worked out quite well. I feel like a half day on a Friday is cool, but like mandatory social work events are kind of a weird vibe. <laughs> right. Like the goal is to have people want to spend time together, right? Like. Anytime I've been told to turn up to a mandatory, mandatory social outside of work event, I'm like, oh, mandatory. Okay. I probably would have just come. <laughs> yeah. One thing we actually tried recently about a year ago was having no working hours. So you can, and even like, you don't have to come into the office if you prefer to work at home or if it's like a brainstorming stage, you want to go out to the park and do sketching on your own or have the team around you and go to go visit exhibitions or museums for inspiration or galleries. That's all up to them. You can do just whatever you want. And we set up just periodically checking in on the progress. And as long as we're able to make that progress, we're okay with all of our designers doing whatever they want. Yeah, that's really cool. I feel like that's a a non-obvious but really productive way to work as well, where you're like working with your employees 
How did that play out? We were very scared to implement it, but it's actually turned out great. The team spirit or morale is much higher mm. while the quality is still the same. It's still great. We find it helps a lot with staff retention as well because they're used to this incredible amount of trust and freedom. Because like if I was an employee in that situation, I'd be like, well, I don't even want to move. Like where I move is unlikely to have this level of like freedom for me to work in the way that's most effective for me. Yeah. And it really gives them the responsibility to make sure they take the project forward. And we found that it's a great relationship or a culture that we have. So some designers might prefer to, I don't know, sleep in in the mornings and maybe work at night. It's me. There are people like that, including me too. Oh, okay. We're two of a kind. And there are people who would prefer to have like a scheduled, like from nine to five, just to stay efficient and have that time at night to socialize or have fun on their own. So it's, you can have both. It's up to you. How does that affect your billing though? Because I know that like when I work with consultancies that often wanted me to basically put in a timer into the computer and turn that timer off when I left the computer, which to me was like counting grains of sand on the beach, but um, that's what they wanted to do. We haven't had projects that required that much of specific time management, but obviously we bill clients based on the time that we spend. And that's based on just the usual method of calculating the time we work on it. Mm -hmm. But in reality, the designers are free to do whatever they want within that time frame. So it's an interesting take on, on that sort of like structure. Thanks, Rich, for joining us on the show today. Um, we've really enjoyed you sharing your story behind Bebop and your wider outlook on the world. We're confident that the audience will enjoy it too. For listeners, don't forget to check our show notes for anything that we've mentioned. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, this has been Redacted. 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 The number you have dialed has not been recognized. Please check and try again. The number you have dialed has been Redacted. Redacted.